Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Essay Voices from the Field. Each week we aim to bring you the true stories of student affairs. Over the course of this podcast, we hope to bring you both voices that feel like they are telling your own story and those that bring you stories you've never heard before. The podcast with expert guests and practical advice. Get ready to learn and become the best higher ed professional you can be. Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. I'm your host, Dr. Corliss Bennett, and I am happy to have you here. This podcast is sponsored by NASPA. Today, I'm excited to have Mr. Steve Jinks, who is from the University of Denver and representing the socioeconomic and class issues in higher ed knowledge community. Steve, how are you doing? I am living the dream. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, why don't you tell us about the dream that you're living? Give us a little background about your institution and what you do there. Sure. So I'm currently at the University of Denver, which is in Denver, Colorado. I am a new PhD student within the Mortgage College of Education here. One of the reasons why I chose this institution was because the the faculty are pretty awesome. And the program itself and the institution have a commitment to inclusive excellence. And so a lot of what we do is sort of social justice based in a lot of different realms. And so that really resonated with me. The institution itself is sort of new for me. It's in in an urban environment. It's a a medium-sized school, so it's not too big. And I I come from a background of larger state schools, but we're about 11,000 to 12,000 students. Um, And about half of those are graduate students. It's a a research two institution. So we do have a lot of uh, graduate programs here. And then outside of, you know, studying and and reading and writing all the time, I do also have a couple of positions around campus. I currently serve as a graduate research assistant for our associate dean of students, but I also am a research assistant for our faculty senate. So I work on faculty issues here at the institution. And I'm also within the disability students program as a testing center associate. Uh, So I work with students who need different testing accommodations and, and help them to find those resources. Wow, that is a lot of hat. Are you actually residential on campus because of the assistantship? Oh, no, I am not. (laughs) Um, I did my time in housing as a a professional for a little bit and then went into enrollment management before deciding to go and and get my doctorate. And so I did not have intentions to to rejoin the on-campus community. So I live off campus and commute in. It's good for my work-life balance for sure. And I don't know how I knew that. I just felt like you might have been in housing at some point. Just kind Many of, the, of us have, right? <laughs> some, some of us have. Um, just the array of things that you said you've been doing with the research. I don't know why. I just felt like you had been in housing. So I was like, well, maybe he's maybe one of the assistantships has him there. But And as far as just a little bit more background on you, you what institutions were you at before? I started my, my educational journey at Central Florida Community College, which is now the Central Florida College. And then I enrolled full-time at Florida State University, a larger research uh, public institution in Florida. I did my master's program in college student personnel at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So that was a little similar to my undergraduate experience. And then after that, I had my first professional role at Cornell University. So I was at a larger Ivy League institution in upstate New York, working in housing in a a really specific population, working with students who were interested in the creative and performing arts. So that was a real niche community that I was working in. And then after that, I worked for three years at Ithaca College, which was kind of right next door to Cornell University, but it's a, a much smaller, about Um, 6,500 students, private um, liberal arts institution, comprehensive institution, where I did enrollment management. So I did recruiting and special events on campus for special populations. 
So from there, I went all the way across the country <laughs> to Denver, which was a much, much more urban environment. You know, it's the, my first time living somewhere that has a train and a, a public bus system that, that runs the way it does. So getting adjusted here and of course the, the cold and mountains and altitude were a mile above sea level. So that's a little different. And we're just out west and new time zone for me and <laughs> a lot of uh, fun adjustments. But those are sort of the different types of institutions that I've, I've moved through in my career. So would you say living in Ithaca was colder than Denver? Because I would think that <laughs> New York would have been colder. Oh, oh, it is definitely colder. Um, a lot of people when I was moving out to Denver said, you know, get get ready for snow. And, you know, the mountains are great, but it's going to be snowy and cold. And it is uh, by far not as snowy as it's been up in the Northeast, especially not in recent history. It was very snowy up there and a little more wet too. It was a, a much different experience. So it sounds like you have a good solid background in some of the student affairs positions and also a little bit with the academic and working with faculty, which I guess really brings us into the topic of the day, which is the, the knowledge community that you are the chair of, the social economic and class issues in higher ed. But more specifically, I know you wanted to speak about intersectionality of class and other identities. First of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about the KC when it started and some of the goals and missions of the KC? Sure. Um, So we're a relatively newer knowledge community. We were founded in 2013, and it was a good time. We were coming out. I think we had been in you know post-recession era for about five years, and so we had seen a lot of different things in our student populations and with their needs. And so this knowledge community kind of grew from that. And there were a couple of very specific things that we were focusing on at the time. So we had a couple of professionals who were really passionate about food pantries. We also had people who were looking at housing insecurity. We have professionals who are looking into how homelessness and foster care youth, how they get into higher education and how can they be um, recruited and supported through their processes. And then sort of more recently, we've started looking at professionals from the poor and working class. So many people working in student affairs on the faculty and the professional side come from these poor working class backgrounds and how do they navigate that? Um, in a higher education realm where capital really looks a lot different. And so much of what we do is we focus on sort of best practices within programming, we do research, and then we provide opportunities for research and sharing those different researches around those different topics. And within the knowledge community, we do cast a really wide net. So we look at a lot of different class issues whether that be supporting low-income students, how that intersects with first-generation students, whether or not those needs are different for students from higher income backgrounds, what it looks like for the middle class to be going to higher education now, and what does that mean in our economy. There's a lot of different functions that happen with that. And then we have two what we call um, sub-communities. So within that, we also have groups of people who are very focused on homelessness and foster care, and then another one for professionals from the poor and working class. So our mission has stayed the same. But we've had opportunities to really focus in and hone in on some of the topics that people feel really passionate about while still leaving ourselves open to a lot of different things. And one of the things that we really appreciate as being a part of NASPA as a larger organization is that our knowledge community has had the opportunity to partner with many other knowledge communities and really work on those intersectionality pieces. So We've been guests at different roundtable discussions. We get invited to participate in pre-conferences at the NASPA annual conference every year. We um, help share surveys for different knowledge communities. Anywhere where we can really kind of lend a hand and make sure that the lens of class issues and economics is, is considered, we like to jump on board and really lend our hand in that if we can. 
And it's really interesting um, that you mentioned that because my background is before my current position, I worked at the University of Southern California, which, you know, is a large private school. And now Mm -hmm. I'm at the California State University in Humboldt. And I don't, I just, for whatever reason, I'm not sure if it's because it's two different institutions, but I just don't recall. And even in my own undergrad and even master's life, I never really heard too much about food insecurity and housing insecurity until in the more recent two years where it's like a serious issue. Like I've been dealing with students who basically couch surf, you know, because of whatever Mm -hmm. reason, not being able to get housing and not because they don't have the money for it, but because of the discrimination against students, especially up in the Humboldt Eureka area where a lot of the landlords may not want students to live in their property. So I just really had never seen it from that side, but I'm noticing that I'm hearing that more and more at institutions are dealing with it. More institutions, like you said, are fed, uh, setting up food pantries. You know, in the 80s, that wasn't something that was, and if it was, maybe it was just a select few that might have told, you know, a couple people and then those people helped them. But I don't even remember my own friends or anyone that, you know, one, you know, once in a month, in a blue moon, you have one or two, but it just seems like now when you're dealing with what you're saying, you know, social economics, it really is an issue now on our college campuses. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned a lot of things that, you know, I think it kind of comes into play with a lot of different issues in higher education. So in the past couple of years, we've seen a rise in a focus and research around issues of things like housing insecurity, food insecurity. In the California system alone, there was a report that came out recently that over 25% of students face some form of food or housing insecurity at some point in their college careers. And I think some of that comes down to people understanding sort of the terminology. I mean, you mentioned couch surfing, and that is living with friends some people would consider, you know, then you're not homeless, like you have a roof over your head. But, you know, technical definitions cover things like, is that your permanent residence? Are you living in a car? Are you living in a shelter? Like there, these different things are being able to be measured. And I think that that's kind of shedding light on it. And kind of similar to things like mental health issues, you know, people say, you know, there's a lot of rising mental health issues within higher education. And some of that um, can be argued is really due to a lifting of the taboo around talking about those different issues. And, and similarly, class and, and social status is something that I think people are becoming more comfortable talking about and acknowledging, um, particularly the different inequities that that can bring within a higher education setting and in society in general. And so we're able to identify students who might be struggling where in the past they were maybe too proud or their their families discouraged, um, looking for different resources that can be helpful to them. One of the things that you mentioned that I thought was really fascinating, because I haven't really heard a lot about it, is just the, the sort of town-to-gown relationship around issues like housing insecurity, where landlords are not looking to rent to students and, you know, that students get a bad rap. And sometimes that's because, you know, they, they can do damage to different properties. We also know most students are, are awesome and they're not going to do that. But ultimately, because of the, the private market of housing, what does that mean when the community doesn't want to provide this need that they have? And many campuses, you know, that's sort of the argument for one of the reasons why they have these live-on requirements for one, two years, all four-year live-on, you know, some of it is within the, the neoliberal framework of the campus needs to make money, and this is sort of an easy way to do that. But there is also a humanitarian effort to that of, 
you know, if you're requiring students to live on campus, you know that they're housed. If you're requiring them to have a meal plan, you know that they have the opportunity to eat food. And while that's not equitable in the sense that everybody is able to afford that or able to afford it easily, the alternative is that when you give students the freedom to not necessarily take advantage of those, they can end up homeless or they can end up not eating. And I think that's a a difficult struggle that higher education professionals and especially up in administration when they're trying to decide what is the best thing for our students to help them have the resources that they need while also not overburdening students who can't even afford those basic needs and keeping them from applying or entering our institutions to begin with. Yes. When you say that, I think about some of the conversations I've had with, in different meetings and different settings. How do you blend what you do with, with the academic affairs? You know, we have obviously the KC that you know, collaborates with student affairs and academic affairs. But one of the things that I always talk about when I think about academic affairs is that the faculty needs to understand and know their audience, if they would, meaning their students. And so you'll have faculty that will complain that, you know, students are in my class, they're asleep, they're bored. And I say, well, no, maybe did you ever, you know, do you ever take the time to find out what your students do? And I always have that example of a student who may work from 11 p.m. to 7 in the morning. And these are uh, Mm non-traditional students, you know, work from 11 p.m. to 7 in the morning as their primary job, come home, see their kids off, drop them off at their different schools, you know, have that time, that breakfast time with their kids, come home after dropping them off, take another maybe two-hour nap, and now they're in their 11 o'clock class. They're tired as all get out. Uh They've done everything they need to do, and they kind of have that doze-off thing, and so then the faculty feels offended that they think it's because the student's been out partying, and they have no clue that this is how the student is making ends meet by working this job that takes him or her through the night and supporting his or her family and still going to school. What are some ways that you work with faculty to help them understand what the students that are in their classrooms? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, I think one of the challenges with student affairs and, and NASPA in general is that we have a lot of really great faculty members who are interested in learning about how to best support their students, but a lot of them are in the student affairs realm already or came from a background of student affairs in some way. But so many of our our faculty are coming from other academic areas where they just aren't aware of that. And so what we always recommend is it's not always the duty of regional or national conferences to be able to put all this information out. If you have the opportunity to reach out and kind of make change and have small workshops to improve those different things with their your faculty on your campus. That's really how you can make those differences because they're not necessarily getting it from the places they need to. And even though social classes in, in higher ed is still somewhat new of a, a discussion area, the people who care about it and are listening to it, you know, it's like any sort of social justice issue. Like we're often preaching to the choir, like people who want to learn more about it already know about it. And so we kind of have to reach out and, and talk to them. And some of that can come from places like faculty senates and helping that to be disseminated, conversations with pre- uh, presidents and chancellors or information from provosts, um, any sort of like studies that can come out around your campus population and, and really diving into that, I, can, I think can be helpful. Um, particularly if you're at institutions that maybe have a stigma or a, a stereotype of being more affluent. The University of Denver is known as being a very like 
higher class institution. We have a lot of rich, very white <laughs> students on our campus, but then we also have many students who don't fall into those categories and they can often be missed or forgotten about because of this kind of broad brushing of what our student population looks like. And just having the personality traits, I guess, for a faculty member to invite students to be open, to talk to you when they have any sort of issues or concerns at all, I think is critical. But also being earnest in that offering, because I know I've heard of faculty members who who say that, and then when students come with concerns, it just gets brushed off. Like People need to be empathetic and really listen and try to understand where students are coming from. And also focus on your pedagogy and the way in which you assess student learning. So that student you mentioned who you know works all night and has family obligations and comes in and is kind of nodding off in class, you know, are they still turning in their papers on time? Are they still learning the information, getting notes from their friends? If they're still getting the information and the content that they needed, you know, maybe that's not the biggest issue that you need to focus on is that the student is falling asleep, particularly since research shows that low-income students and first-generation students often have at least campus jobs, if not campus and off-campus or some combination employment that can range for 20 or more hours a week. So even if they're not very non-traditional in the sense that they're working full-time, overnights, all the time, a lot of lower-income students are still working a lot and, and having to balance that with their academics. I mean, even as a doctoral student, I'm balancing three jobs. I had a fourth one over the winter quarter, and I had to cut back because, well, I really didn't want to take out a lot of extra loans in order to cover tuition and basic needs. I also realized like it's really hard to balance all of these things and still be a student and still write and read and you know try to find time to sleep. <laughs> and so I think Absolutely. the more the faculty the more faculty can be aware of those things I think is is helpful. Been there done that. And the thing <laughs> is sometimes we just have to bite the bullet and I say that with student loans because think about what we tell our students your first priority is what? School. So if three and four and five jobs are having you tired, sleepy, you're not dealing with everything, and you're trying to perform in the classroom, something's got to give. So I'm yep. glad that you were able to see that, you know, for yourself, because, you know, we, we in student affairs, we're always ready to tell everybody, but sometimes it takes a minute for us to realize <laughs> what we need to do. And so yeah. I guess for me, I'm the lone queen. I'm like, you know what? If I go and get all this education, that means I'm going to have a job. I can pay y'all back. <laughs> you know, because that's the dream, right? <laughs> that's right. what we're hoping for. Yeah, that's that's the piece. And so, you know, during my doctoral piece, I took out loans. I'm like, I can't be worried about, you know, I was working full time then, too. So it's like I can't mm. be worried about not knowing if I this, that and the other. Sometimes you have to bite the bullet for your sanity. And, and you know that when, when we talk to our students and now you're realizing that <laughs> as a grad student. I mean, it's a lot of work that folks don't understand that you have to do, you know, in order to make things happen and, and know that you are a role model. You're setting mm -hmm. an example for students who are watching you, even your own peers, as well as, you know, you working in the different places that you do there at, in Denver. You're still considered a role model and people are, are watching you and hoping that if he can do it, then maybe I can do it. And you just kind of go <laughs> through that. Just always know they're watching you. Oh, yeah. Right. Always watching. Um, but also on the same note, you know, while, while people still have those struggles, and I know many, many a, a professional, so not even students, but, you know, people in student affairs who have second jobs or side hustles, as we say, 
to help make ends meet because, you know, ultimately we're still in education. It's still not, you know, the most well-paid occupations we could have gone into. But one of the things that we're really <laughs> pushing for now is for, for student affairs professionals and faculty to be open about their class status and where they came from and talk about those stories of, you know, like you said, I had to bite the bullet and just take those loans so that I could focus on being a student and being able to share those stories so that students also know, like, it's okay to graduate with some debt if you're going to be going into your career. Because that's the other fear is like, people don't want to go into debt. And so they work and work and work so that they keep it at balance zero, but at what cost, you know, so we want to make sure that people can kind of see that. And so that's one of the things we're kind of pushing on is trying to get more profiles of professionals and faculty from the poor and working class who can be role models for what people can aspire to, but also to serve as those cautionary tales of like, this is what happened. We don't want you to do that. And so, you know, please try to learn from that if we can. When we talk about social economics, for example, during my undergrad years, I didn't get financial aid because my parents made $1,000 over broke. So what's that mean? We still broke. Mm -hmm. But because it said you have to make $10 and they made 20 or you had to qualify for financial aid to make $10 or less and we made 20, they just shut you down. And so I didn't really get financial aid until my sister, who's three years younger, when she was a freshman, I was a senior. That's when I got a tad bit of aid. But again, it's like, what do you do? It's like, you know, my mom was like, well, you know, you need to work or, you know, we don't want you to work, but then, you know, you want to be able to have the foods and the, I always like to make the joke, I want to buy Fruit Loops and things like that. <laughs> and so you have to think about those things. And so it was just a matter, I mean, I took loans out for all three of my degrees. Sometimes, like I said, you cannot be stressing so much, especially when that money is available. And everybody likes to get on you about all the, you know, especially if you're dealing with social economics and, oh, you don't want loans, you can't do that. And I was like, ah, but I can't be a good student if I don't take it out. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you mentioning that about side hustles and, and, and also knowing that you have to bite the bullet. Um, and then for me, as a first-generation college grad, I know that was very important for myself and my uh, sibling. So in 2013, how did it get developed? Or, or get just a little bit, tad bit about, like, did NASPA feel as important that you guys bring it to NASPA or just kind of came about because of the state of the, of the world in the sense of institutions? Um, it was kind of a mix of both. I mean, NASPA, obviously, they care about many, many things. They have a lot of hands and a lot of pockets as far as advocacy and policy goes. When it comes to creating a knowledge community, it really comes down to you just need a handful of really dedicated individuals who can make the case for why you need a specific knowledge community. So, you know, it could have been argued that social class issues fall into some other category. We And they could have said, you know, we don't think that that's appropriate. Like, we don't need that. Like, if somebody wanted to have a Caribbean American knowledge community, the argument could be made, like, why can't that fall under the African American knowledge community? So you have to really be intentional about why is this knowledge community important? What is your mission going to be? And why is it something that NASPA doesn't already offer? And at the time, so somewhere in the 2012-2013 area, Claire Cady, who is a champion for food pantry and socioeconomic issues in a lot of different arenas, was really the, the champion for getting this knowledge community started. And so she kind of reached out to some other people that she knew who were also very passionate about that. I was lucky enough to be one of the, the communicators chair for that startup and 
once we had enough people together and we made the push to NASPA, it became an official knowledge community and we were able to build our leadership team and, and really start building out what we wanted. And for the first couple of years, we sort of just did whatever we wanted. <laughs> we did a lot with socioeconomics, focusing primarily on things like food pantries, housing insecurity. We did a couple of rogue things that you know ruffled some feathers. Like when the, the annual conference came out, we created a publication that told people about cheaper housing arrangements and places you can go to eat that kind of like deterred people from going to the host hotels, but we wanted to provide more economic options for people. And so those were sort of the things we were doing a little earlier on. Now that we've been established for a little bit, we're, we're working on getting our next five-year plan actually together for what we want to accomplish moving forward, both in terms of research um, and advocacy, what we want to get out of our membership, how we want to grow as a knowledge community, and really helping people to understand that the intersectionality piece is, is really big in that you don't have to identify as somebody from the poor or working class, or you don't have to have been a first-generation student or have experienced homelessness in order to be a member of our knowledge community or care about this. We have faculty and professionals who come from the full gamut of, of backgrounds and sharing what that meant for encountering people from a different background for the first time or what it meant to navigate the college experience, having friends who are low-income or being a low-income student and wanting to stay and be a student leader for the summer, but realizing that that meant taking out more loans. <laughs> we have people from all different backgrounds who can contribute to that. And this state of America and in the world, even the the economic component of being able to afford a college education is, is possibly you know one of the most salient and the most widely sweeping. I mean, any population can feel the pressure of economics when it comes to education. And we are excited to be sort of at the forefront of that and always welcome more people who also care about that and want to help create best practices and literature around that to, to join in with our team so that we can work towards those goals together and hopefully make it a little more equitable for everyone. Well, I really appreciate all your comments. This issue is not going away as far as dealing with housing insecurity, food insecurity, the whole social economics, or with first generations or students that just don't have the resources. So I really appreciate that you guys pushed for this knowledge community. And I appreciate, and, and I can see where your knowledge community can definitely collaborate with others on several different levels. So I appreciate that. And, I, and look forward to seeing more from your knowledge community at national conferences, at regional mm -hmm. conferences, at webinars, or whatever the case may be, because you definitely can do a cross-intersection between all of the knowledge communities, and I think that's what makes this so special. Thank you. Yeah, we're really excited to do that. We've already sort of outlined a couple of different areas where we're looking to do that in the somewhat near future. When the Center for First Generation Student Success from NASPA came out, we were sort of one of the first knowledge communities to jump on and partner with them, acknowledging that many first generation students are also low income, but also that those two things are not mutually inclusive. So we have first generation students from very affluent backgrounds, and we also have low income students who are the children of people with degrees. So that can look very different. Acknowledging, you know, students with disabilities, they have not only school costs, but also their medical costs. And what does that look like in terms of required on-campus insurance that may not cover their medical needs or having to go off campus? Looking at issues, you know, LGBT students in the queer spectrum are statistically much higher rates of homelessness. And what does that look like? And how do you navigate that? All the racial inequities and the history of racism and what that means economically for, for different cultures. And of course, all of the outliers who don't fall within those populations or those historic sort of 
theories that we kind of draw from. We look at a lot of those different things. And so the awesome thing about our knowledge community is that there's really no shortage of work to be done. And so we're excited to be doing that work. And of course, the other hand of that is that there's just so much that we can't possibly do all of it on our own. And that's why acknowledging the intersectionality and partnering with organizations, both within NASPA and beyond, we do partner with other organizations across the country who um, support us financially and academically to help further our mission is, is so important because, of course, nobody knows about sharing resources better than the socioeconomic knowledge community, right? Absolutely. Well, I would love for you to stay in touch with us, especially if you have some big webinar or some big meetings of some sort or presenting at a different conference in and outside of NASPA, because basically you're still representing NASPA in those different um, entities, but would, would love to hear more about what's going on. If there's something coming up, please, we can definitely do a part two to this podcast about some of the things that you would be doing, you and the knowledge community would be doing. So we'd love for you to come back and let us know, especially if there's something coming up that we can have an opportunity to talk with you and or your colleagues on what they're doing for this knowledge community in the United States and the world, <laughs> whatever you're doing, however you're doing it, I want you to come back and talk to me about it because I'm really excited about this because this does intersect all knowledge communities, all institutions in some mm -hmm. kind of way. So I really appreciate you being here with me today. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you and stay tuned for more great podcasts to come. Thanks for listening to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. If you enjoyed your time with us, tell a friend. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, let us know. If you want to be a guest, tell us your story. Email us at savoices at naspa.org. You can find all our info at naspa.org slash savoices. See you next time. Thank you.